Yes, we are. We'll start our 2016 season next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 5th, show number one of the 2016 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at Paul Goldschmidt, Ioannis Cespedes, the outlook for the Cubs' young stars, and much more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson talking about Mookie Betts, Carlos Correa, some top pitchers in the league, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Nationals shortstop prospect Trey Turner. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at a closer battle brewing in Milwaukee and the center field job in Detroit. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at two players who changed addresses in the offseason, Yankees outfielder Aaron Hicks and Colorado reliever Jake McGee. In our new preseason position profile segment, Greg Fishwick will be looking at catchers and designated hitters. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking a little bit about how we got here with the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's a brand new season. And that means we got to talk some baseball. And as always, the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report. And our old friend Harold Nichols returns once again. Nick, welcome to the first edition of Baseball HQ Radio for 2016. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Did you have a good offseason? I had a very good offseason, Cert- certainly did, and but certainly ready to get back to baseball. It was an interesting offseason as well, and that's, I think, what we'd like to talk about today in the National League. And uh, first thing I'd like to ask you about is a particular player, and uh, that particular player is Paul Goldschmidt of Arizona. He had a sensational first half last year. He was almost at the $60 mark. He didn't quite measure up to that in the second half, but still came in well over $40, close to 50 in some measuring systems. Do you think Paul Goldschmidt can repeat a $50 season in 2016? No, I don't think he can repeat a $50 season in 2016. And I think the difference is going to come where, where a lot of that, there were a couple of things that drove that season. One, of course, was the, was the home runs. But another thing that really drove that season was stolen bases in terms of the, the overall value. And if you look at the second half, what happened was his SBO dropped from 15% in the first half to 7% in the second half. So they seem much less willing to let him take a chance on the bases in the second half. And if that continues, certainly the stolen bases will not be there at the level at which they were last year. And that was a bit of an anomaly for, for Goldschmidt anyway. So uh, I don't expect Goldschmidt to have a bad season by any means. He's going to be one of the best players in the in the National League. But my guess is he's not going to hit that $50 mark with the stolen bases uh, dropping and, and a little bit off the table. But you're not worried about the other aspects of his offensive performance, are you? He's the batting average looks secure, uh, certainly on base percentage looks secure, and uh, the power seemed real to me, and and looks like it's uh, uh, as dependable as almost anybody that you can think of. Yeah, I think so. The rest of it all looks very, very good. In fact, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised he, he to see him finally get to to forty home runs at some point. Uh, 
that's certainly within within his capabilities given his his power index and his expected power index and so um certainly that's and his ballpark so uh, that's a possibility we might see him top 40 home runs this year but i i don't know that the uh, extra dollars value from the stolen bases will be there the projection for the stolen bases this year is 16 which is still pretty valuable and places goldschmidt solidly in the 30 to 35 dollar range do you think there's upside because we've we've got the 30 home run prediction as well you're saying maybe 40 so if he goes 40 say 100 rbis uh, say nearly 100 runs scored bats 305 400 on base percentage if he does get 16 stolen bases and 40 home runs does that push him over 40 again well, you know, it sure might. I mean, that, that's that's certainly possible. I think you you've got a player here who's uh, heading into his peak years, and uh, certainly is a time we would expect increased production rather than decreased production. So certainly, that's that's indeed possible. It is interesting too that he has been so reliable uh, as far as staying on the field. He missed some time in 2014, but in all of his other seasons, he's had 500 plus at bats and uh, well over 600 plate appearances in most of those seasons as well. So, uh, Paul Goldschmidt certainly a top pick. I'm curious, uh, would you make him your first pick overall in a National League draft? I, I don't know that. That I'm not sure about. I think there's some other guys that I would look at as the as a possible first pick. Uh, it depends on what on how you're going to balance out your roster. I think um, uh, if if you're if you're going to go for a pitcher, there's a guy named Clayton Kershaw out there who might be a, a reasonable first pick. Yeah, that's always an interesting question whether Kershaw would make a first pick in a league. I'm wondering, Nick. We know Clayton Kershaw can really perform in the National League. Is there any other pitcher who's worth looking at as a first round pick? Not necessarily first overall, of course, but uh, in that first twelve to fifteen picks. You know, if you if you're if you're, it depends on the size of the league you're talking about, I think, and that's where that's where I think there is one other guy who maybe maybe worth a look at this point, but only if you're talking about a number twelve pick, a number thirteen, a number fourteen. I think somewhere somewhere in that area would be where you're looking, and that's Jake Arita. Um, he he has certainly over the last two years developed into a uh, an unqualified ace. Um, I think the only thing that would would prevent you from going all in on Arita as a first rounder would be certainly a little bit of a lack of, uh, of track record. Uh, you know, Kershaw has the track record over several years of being able to produce at that level. Arita has a track record over two years of being able to produce at that, uh, at that $20 plus level. So, um, I really like him. I think he would do very, very well. And if I were in a, in a league where I had the 15th pick, uh, certainly he might be the guy I'd grab, but I don't think I'd push him into the top eight or maybe not even in the top 12. It's kind of right on the cusp, I think, of a first-round pick. What about Max Scherzer? Uh, he's been considered uh, that kind of a level of pitcher for the last couple of years. Didn't have quite the uh, great year last year that a lot of people were hoping for, especially people who paid top dollar for him. But he's still a, a very, very good pitcher and a very consistently good pitcher. You wouldn't consider uh, Max Scherzer for a first-rounder? I, I don't know. I think given that he didn't have quite the the, uh, uh, the year last year that everyone was, was thinking about, uh, I think I'd probably make him more of a second-round pick than a first-round pick at this point. Um, at least that would be my be my take on it. Uh, he's also he's going to be 31, so kind of getting just past the peak age, so I begin to see some kind of a drop in performance or a little bit of, of uh, a downturn. Uh, so I think I would... Uh, but hold off on Scherzer as a first-round pick. You know that's an interesting point you make about the uh, about the pitcher's age. Do you think that 
maybe uh, we need to start rethinking when the peak is and how long it lasts because of the advances that we're seeing in training methods and in medical interventions and so forth that, uh, you know, even 10 years ago, 31, 32, you were thinking this is the end of the peak. I wonder if they've managed to push that out to maybe 33, 34 before we have to start thinking there's probably a decline coming sooner rather than later. Well, maybe so. And the other thing, the other thing that we need to think about, I think, is what we've seen with several pitchers is uh, as they as they hit mid thirties, beginning to reinvent themselves with new pitches, with uh, new approaches. Uh, guys who can actually pitch very, very well uh, begin to see some physical changes and can't throw it quite as hard. But uh, given that they are really good pitchers, can kind of reinvent themselves and take themselves into their uh, into their late thirties and still perform very well. So I think we should look need to look at that as well. I think, yeah, that's a good point, and uh, I think the way to look for that is guys who re- gradually transition from getting a lot of strikeouts to getting maybe fewer strikeouts but more swing and miss type strikeouts to guys who are content to get a lot more ground ball outs even though they have the, the fastball capacity, in, in other words, who learn how to pitch rather than throw. Right, yeah, I think that's a, that's indeed a possibility. Um, you know, And so, uh, you know, you, you can't discount a player – I think anymore, who's a real a real pitcher, uh, uh, who begins to lose his fastball, but can kind of find some other way of compensating for that, uh, and still do very very well in the mound. Going over to the New York Mets, uh, they made a bit of a splash recently, re-signing Yoena Cespedes to play. It looks like maybe center field, which would be a misplacement in my opinion. But leaving that aside, he was sensational when he played for the Mets last year as part of their run to the playoffs. And now the question is: Do you think Yoena Cespedes can have a full season with the Mets, like that great part season that he had in 2015? No, 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 definitely not. I'll tell you why. Cespedes is a good player. There's no doubt about that. But he's also a very streaky player. And so what we saw with the Mets was they got to capitalize on one of his hot streaks. That hot streak actually started before he went to the Mets uh, and continued into mid-September. And then in the middle of September, uh, things began to to tail off. His last homer was on September the 14th. He only hit 200 over the second half of September. So what we saw was a wonderful hot streak. That went for a while, and then he dropped back, uh, kind of flipped on the other end for a while, and, you know, might have stayed there a month, and then suddenly began to hit a hot streak again. So I don't think we're going to see, I I think it'd be a mistake to count on a full season of what he did during that hot streak when he first came over to the Mets. I'm particularly concerned about the power output. Uh, The 35 home runs last year was looked like quite an anomaly considering the previous years he was in the low to mid-20s. And all of a sudden he rides this hot streak that you talk about all the way up to 35 home runs. And I don't see it happening again for all the reasons that you cite. And in fact, uh, how surprised would you be if he even hit 30? Yeah, you know, he could. I think he could easily miss the 30 home run mark this year. Uh, you know, the other thing you've got to, to think about is that um, I, pitchers, were, he just, he, pitchers were just seeing him for the first time when he came to the Mets. Uh, so there was all of that kind of thing uh, that, that probably, and he was in the hot streak that was driving it. So pitchers will get a better look at him the second time around. And um, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think he'd be lucky to hit to hit 30. Something else to be aware of that last season, even though he hit 35 home runs, his fly ball rate was actually below 40% for the first time in his big league career. And that was uh, quite a, a concerning point for me because it drove his home run per fly ball rate up from the low to mid-teens all the way up to 19%. So one-fifth of his fly balls were going over fences, and that just doesn't seem sustainable. 
Right. No, I think you're right about that. And, you know, the other thing to, that you look at, if you look back at, at last year's season and look at the home runs by month, you get four in April, three in May, three in June. Suddenly the hot streak hit. He's up to eight in July, eight in August, and nine in September, eight of those in the first two weeks. Uh, and then he begins to tail off after that. So I, I would, would not expect to see that happen again. And his home run per fly ball rate in those hot months you mentioned, way over 20%. In fact, in July, he had a really good July, eight home runs, as you mentioned. 27% of his fly balls went for home runs. He was simply not hitting fly balls, but a lot of them were going out of the yard. And as I said, and I think you agree, that just doesn't seem sustainable in the long run. But I guess we'll see, but I wouldn't bet on it. No, I, I wouldn't bet on it either. Now, speaking of hot streaks, uh, the Cubs uh, had several great young players having tremendous 2015 breakout seasons and I'm wondering of those guys uh, Chris Bryant and uh, um, Schwarber and these guys who do you think looks most likely to be able to sustain or build on that breakout and do any of them look particularly vulnerable to you they had some guys who did very very well but I think what you've got to remember about all of them at this point is that they're going into a second season uh, and pitchers will be getting a new look and that sophomore slump that we talk about is something that's, that's very real um so I think the guy that's probably most vulnerable at this point would be Schwarber. Um, just, just because we've got a wide range of outcomes possible for Schwarber. I mean, here's a guy that has tremendous power, uh, might top 30 home runs, uh, but also might have trouble with his batting average, which could force him into a kind of a platoon situation. Uh, and, and we know there are always some, some defensive liabilities at, um, uh, a catcher with Schwarber, so depending upon how much he's used there, and then he moves, might have to go to the outfield, and the outfield gets crowded, and so a platoon situation is more perhaps likely if he's playing the outfield. So, uh, you know, I, I think I think Schwarber may become a, a guy who plays against right-handed pitching before the season's over, and that would certainly have some impact on his value. Although last year, if you look at look at his platoon spits last year, he, the guy hit 143 against left-handed pitchers. And, uh, that's something that uh, the Cubs will eventually begin to notice, and a 52% contact rate. Uh, so I, I would see Schwarber perhaps tailing off a bit in terms of his playing time against lefties. I think you made an interesting point about his defensive position as well. It doesn't look like he's in a, a, a very good place on the field because either they want to have him behind the plate, which imposes all those defensive um, responsibilities on a player, and a young catcher sometimes has a little trouble um, managing his offense because he's so concerned about managing his defense, and it takes a little bit away. We've seen that time and time again. And the other option the Cubs have, of course, is to put him out in the outfield somewhere where he's terrible. And maybe you, you don't want to have a player going out there playing a position where he's kind of unqualified and not very good and you know having balls go over his head or skipping past him to the fence and stuff and he's no uh, Paul Blair running around out there either. Uh, I really worry about the defensive side of the game and its potential to affect the offensive side of the game for Kyle Schwarber. Yeah, I, I do as well. I think that could be a, uh, a, real, uh, a, a real problem for him this, this coming season. You also mentioned Schwarber's uh, relatively low contact rate for the year, under 70% at 67%. And uh, Chris Bryant, who uh, had a tremendous year as well for the Cubs, also not exactly a, a high-contact guy. And that, does that cause concern for you as far as his ability to build on 2015 and have a terrific 2016? Well, certainly it does. I mean, you, you've got to, you, at some point, a guy's got to make contact. And so when you're looking at a, uh, at a low contact rate, uh, in, in Bryant's case, we're projecting 64%. Uh, 
Uh, that's going to affect the batting average. Uh, he does hit the ball very hard, and that'll help keep the batting average up. He does hit line drives. Uh, but uh, if, if that batting average starts to drop, uh, then you have some certainly concern about Bryant's ability to continue at the level at which we saw him last year. His ex- expected batting average for the coming season projected is only two thirty two, but his batting average is 30 points higher, largely because, as you say, he hits the ball hard, hits a lot of line drives. The uh, projection for his power is only 24 home runs. Does that surprise you, or does that seem like something that seems reasonable to expect? No, I think that's something reasonable to expect at this point as you, as you look at what he did. Uh, you know, what he did last season, I think that's a reasonable expectation. He's he's very young. I, I would not expect to suddenly see it. A, a, uh, he had 26 last year. So, I, you know, I wouldn't expect to see an explosion at this point, uh, especially with the contact rate, rate where it is. And pitchers will try to stay away from his strengths. And he's going to have to adjust to that this year. Earlier, we were talking about Paul Goldschmidt and the value that he got from his stolen bases. Uh, Chris Bryant kind of quietly got 13 bags, which is a nice contribution in most formats of fantasy. And this year, we're projecting uh, about the same at 14. How valuable do you think the stolen bases can be for Chris Bryant, not only in this year but maybe over the next couple? Yeah, I think that, I think those those kind of things certainly can help with Bryant. I mean, he's got. Um, uh, he, he's got he's got above average speed, uh, and, and that so that's going to continue to drive those stolen bases. And stolen base SBO last year was right around ten percent, uh, certainly a, a reasonable level. They're not going to let him run all the time, but uh, the kind of situation where he does have some freedom on the base path. So I think the the, uh, the stolen bases can continue to be a uh, an interesting contributor to Chris Bryant's overall profile. And finally, Nick, every offseason we look eagerly to see which players are changing leagues via the trade or via free agent signings. Which players are coming in from the American League to the National League that you think could have the most significant impact on our fantasy games this year? That's always an interesting question. But I think the uh, the trade that happened just this last week, they sent Corey Dickerson to Tampa for Jake McGee, is a, is a trade that will could impact a couple of players. First of all, the with Dickerson gone, Gerardo Parra suddenly has a a full-time gig if he didn't have one before. And so Gerardo Parra in Colorado uh, could certainly be an interesting possibility in terms of having uh, some real real fantasy value. And the other one is Jake McGee coming over to Colorado. Colorado, at this point, is without a closer. Uh, McGee certainly has the peripherals, which suggests that he could be an excellent closer in Colorado. A, uh, a strong dom rate, excellent control, maybe a little bit of concern with a fly ball rate. We'd like to see a higher ground ball rate for a guy who's going to be pitching half his games in Coors Field. But uh, I think McGee looks like an interesting possibility as a guy coming over, and I think that uh, Gerardo Parra looks like an interesting possibility as well. All right, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We really do appreciate it. Looking forward to 2016 and your regular appearances here at Baseball HQ Radio. Harold Nichols is a BaseballHQ.com analyst and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and our old friend Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to a new season of Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David, it is great to be back. Jock, uh, we're going to be talking about a few big-name players in the American League and uh, perhaps none bigger coming into 2016 than Mookie Betts of Boston. I've been reading an awful lot online and in the magazines and so forth, and there's more than a few experts, more than a few touts, saying Mookie Betts could be the most valuable player in fantasy baseball this year in the American League. First of all, do you agree with that assessment? And second of all, where do you see Mookie Betts's ceiling? And more importantly, for somebody thinking of a first-round pick, or a high first-round pick in particular, where is his floor? 
Yeah, I own Mookie Betts, and I, I absolutely agree with uh, some of these assessments that are coming out. Um, this is a guy who who just didn't miss a beat coming up from the minors, from the low minors all the way to the majors. I mean, he, he struggled a little bit in the first half, but uh, if you look at his age and, and, and what he did in his uh, his 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 rookie year, which was in 2014, what he did last year, and look at his his BPIs, his underlying metrics. I mean, the sky is the limit to me. I mean, this is a guy who could be uh, challenging for fantasy MVPs, if not this year, in the near future. Talk about those skills a little bit with Mookie Betts. Uh, it's one thing for a player to have a good season at age 22, age 23, but it's somewhat more rare, don't you think, that the player backs up that performance with the kind of skills performance that you would expect from an older, more established player. Yeah, if you look at his skills, his contact rate is in the in the mid-80s, which obviously batting average is in short supply, so he's got that going for him. He has the uh, the the speed metrics that say that uh, even with his expected batting average, he's, he's probably going to hit a little higher than that because, as as we both know, people with or players with legs can uh, can uh, outrun their uh, their expected batting average. His his power is above average. It's very good. Uh, um, he he looks like he's a he's a twenty. 25 home run guy waiting to happen. Maybe not 25 this year. We're projecting him for uh, for 19, and all I think. Um, and uh, base running, uh, he stole 21 bases last year. Um, all he really needs to to grow that is uh, a little bit more um, stolen base opportunity because he's 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 well over the metric that we we call a, 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 a we have for a suggest uh, a successful base stealer um, he's the whole package um, there's nothing not to like here his hard contact uh, 119 his hard contact percentage uh, I, I just I just don't see the downside right now 119 on that hard contact uh, index means he's 19 percent higher than the league than the league average in combine when you combine his contact rate with his hard hit rate and his heart his contact rate is very high which is contributing to that but clearly this is a guy who's hitting the ball with authority he's 20 percent line drives for two straight years which is right what you'd expect and jock something interesting i noticed in 2015 he nudged his fly ball rate up from 38 percent to uh she's now i got that wrong again okay in 2015, he nudged his fly ball rate up over the 40% mark. He was at 39% in his first year, 2014. And that's a good sign for somebody who's um, moving up in the power estimation. You know, we want to see that guy over 40%, maybe 45% would be even better. But the fact is, it, it's a trend that's going in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, all of his metrics, if, if you look at the whole package, and, and something we talked about earlier offline He's 23 years old, and for most players who are 23, where you and I would be saying, "Well, he's only 23. He's he's got he's got some growth ahead of him. He can improve." Well, if he if he improves on this, he's going to be a monster. And on on the home run front, in 2014, he had five homers in about 190 at bats. Last year, he had roughly three times as many at bats, so we would have expected 15 or 16 home runs. He actually had 18, which is doesn't sound like a lot, but it is again a small indication of a positive trend in an area where you really would like to see a positive trend. I like Mookie Betts a lot. I'm not going to say he's an odds-on favorite or anything for the most valuable player in fantasy baseball, but I see that the possibility is there. I also see that possibility, Jock, for Jose Altuve, who was the most valuable player, at least according to Baseball HQ's dollar rankings. And I wonder, first of all, do you think Jose Altuve can repeat? Yeah, I do. He's still... He's still 26 too, so he's a young player, and uh, he 
he's he's similar in a lot of respects to Mookie Betts. Uh, um, he's he, he's not just a one, two, three trick pony. He with his uptick in power, he hit 15 homers last year. Um, he he pretty much does everything right now. Um, his his stolen bases slid a little bit, obviously last year. I think he went from uh, from what from 56 down to 38, but his rise from seven home runs to 15, um, it it made him the MVP last year. Um, he's still young enough to do this again. And uh, I'm looking at his metrics. It looks like the power metrics uh, he can sustain. Um, it'll be interesting. Um, his best years may be behind him, but I, I still give him a chance to do this again. Boy, I, I don't know if his best years are behind him. I think his best years might be yet to come. Uh, as players age, they tend to run less, but doubling his home runs in, in the space of one year in relatively the same amount of at-bats is a very positive sign for me. Having said that, though, I think I'd rather that he was you know down around 10 home runs if he's going to steal me 60 rather than being at 15 home runs and, and stealing 35 just because uh, stolen bases in the American League a little bit tough to come by. Yeah, they very much are, and I'm looking at his stolen base uh, caught stealing trend. Uh, two years ago, he stole 58 bases, was caught nine. Last year, it was 36 and 13. Remember, the Astros are a, are a much better team than they were two years ago, so you have to wonder what that's going to do to his uh, stolen base opportunity. And again, uh, trusting my eyes, he's he's not exactly uh, a a long lean. Um, um, gliding base stealer. He's he's a short, stocky guy. So you you almost wonder where those stolen bases are going to go. It'll be a, that'll be a really interesting thing for us to watch. It is uh, important to note that he's pushed his contact rate up into the ninety percent range, and with it, his hard contact index is up over a hundred, which means he's now after being slightly below league average in that department for the last couple of years. In two thousand fifteen, he actually nudged his nose just over the line. Boy, another case where it's not always a situation where everything's uh, easy to see, but the trends are all pointed in the right direction. Yeah, they are, and uh, and it's interesting. We're comparing um, him with Mookie Betts a little bit. Uh, again, we're looking at, uh, at two players who who can pretty much do it all. They're going to get uh, double digits everything. They're going to keep their batting averages up. Um, um, and these are the guys who, who have very good chances to be MVPs, fantasy MVPs. I mean, if you look at their, their relative draft picks, they're behind the big power guys, and you understand that from a roster construction standpoint. Everyone wants to get the 30, 40 home run hitters because uh, it takes uh, – two or three guys like that to, to win home runs, and home runs drive a lot of other categories. But when you boil it down to just one player at the end of the year, if you have a guy who is who is uh, stealing uh, 30, 40 bases, uh, hitting uh, 15, 20 home runs, and uh, uh, giving you a high batting average of 300, they're going to be your MVPs. Yeah, they are. The one caveat I'd throw in, in all of this is that uh, the big home run explosion that uh, Altuve enjoyed, a doubling of both home runs and home run rate, is that his fly ball rate is still way under 40%. He's down around 35%, which is an increase over past years when he was actually down around 30. Indicates maybe he is consciously trying to loft the ball, but at 35%, he's got a room, a little bit of room to maneuver if he wants to get up to that 20 home run plateau. Yeah, he's doing an interesting dance with that batting average and ground ball rate and the fly ball rate. I will, I will add, though, if you look at our ballpark metrics, suddenly Houston has become very home run friendly. I don't know whether that's a function of, uh, of the players they have or whatever. It was always a, a slightly home run friendly ballpark, but it's very home run friendly right now, and uh, Altuve seems to be taking advantage of that. I'm looking at his second half numbers. He really upped his power metrics in the second half. Um, his They were 
nothing spectacular in the first half but now he's actually hitting at uh, at average power his, his power index is 104 his expected power index is 98 uh, you're right his his power is on the upswing having said that you mentioned his batting average not on the upswing it was at 341 in 2014 when he was much more uh, a ground ball hitter much less a fly ball hitter he adjusted those uh, swing mechanics uh, as we've just discussed and in the process his batting average fell from 340 to 313 which is a pretty significant drop for a guy with as many at-bats as that at 341 he's basically carrying two or three spots on your roster yeah um yeah it's 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 fascinating um it'll be interesting to see because uh, then we could go from his batting average to his speed and a lot's going to depend on how well his legs hold up over the next few years like i said he's 26 now so if he's going to slow down it might be soon um we'll see what happens there's also some experts who are looking at the houston astros and they're saying yes there's a player here who could be the most valuable player in fantasy and it's not jose altuve it's carlos correa who came up with a hell of a bang in the uh after the season started and boy he certainly looked like he belonged and of course the question is in a situation like that how much do you worry about the sophomore slump well it's interesting and, and to figure that out i i went to his first and second half stats and uh I mean, his second half stats were good. His power, his power held up. His expected power index doesn't look good. He hit a lot more ground balls in the second half, and uh, he batted 265. His, uh, his, he, he started with a 35% hit rate in the first month that he came up, um, which wasn't going to last. Um, but it looks like pitchers made a little bit of an adjustment on him um, uh, as, as he went through the league. Um, I don't think he can hold. I don't think he can maintain the same pace his first year. I mean, if you look at his age, he's 21. He's still new to the league. Um, pitchers are adjusting on him. He has to adjust back. Um, I think his his second half, uh, his 265 batting average was at least partially a reflection of his youth and the adjustments that opposing pitchers made. Now he has to adjust back. And I'll say another thing. I'm not convinced that his 14 stolen bases are, are reflective of any strength or or upside there. His his speed is is fairly average or or almost a, a tick below average. Uh, he's got young, healthy legs. I would, for example, project him for more than uh, 20 stolen bases or anything like that. So he would have to uh, m- m- stake his MBB case on a really good batting average and uh, and lots of home runs. I see the home runs happening. Not sure I see the 300 batting average quite yet. And here, here's the thing. I don't see the home runs as realistic at all. This is a situation where you're talking about a fly ball rate in the 30% range. Underneath that, in the second half last year, he hit 15 home runs with a fly ball percentage of 28%. 50% ground balls, 28% fly balls, and yet he hits 15 home runs. And of course, how does he do it? A 24% home run per fly ball rate. Now, I know the Houston ballpark is conducive to home runs. As we all know, it's pretty small in the in the uh, corners and down the lines. But boy, oh boy, Jock, 25% home run rate seems awfully high to repeat. Yeah, you're right. He's going he's to have to make some adjustments, and this will be the interesting thing. Uh, 21-year-old player, I really like his future. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a consolidation year this year. Yeah, I think if I if I was sitting there at you know pick number four or pick number five or in an auction with uh, still a lot of money in my wallet, I'm not sure that I'm going to be real confident about Carlos Correa that high in a draft this year. I, I just don't see I, – I see more opportunity for him to come down to earth than to build on or improve on what he did last year, as great as it was. Uh, Jock, uh, when I was talking with Harold Nichols earlier about the National League, we discussed whether there's anybody other than Clayton Kershaw – 
in the pitching ranks in the National League who's worthy of a first-round pick. And he said maybe Jake Arrieta. And I'm wondering, uh, this this put in my mind about the American League, is there a first-round potential pitcher at all in your league? No, I don't see it. Uh, at least no one obvious. And uh, and think about it. Go back to last year. Did, did anyone predict what uh, Dallas Keuchel was going to do last year? Um, go back to his 2014. He struck out six and a half batters a game. He was a good pitcher, but... Uh, my goodness, all of his metrics went up. Um, went, they just, they went through the roof. He, he went from being a $14 pitcher five by five to $37 pitchers. So basically what you're, what you're saying, what you're trying to do is saying, okay, who has the best chance to come from out of nowhere? And that person's not going to be, uh, in the, uh, going to be drafted in the first round. Uh, that's, that's a huge risk in the American League. So I'll ask, uh, if it's not Dallas Koikel and it's not, uh, David Price, for instance, uh, moving to a better situation, certainly uh, uh, than uh, what he was before he was with Toronto. I guess that was an okay situation. But in Boston, they look like they're going to score a lot of runs and be pretty good. Why not to, Why not a David Price? I, yeah, I like Price. I agree with you. I, I don't like the park he pitches in. Um, I, th- I think feasibly, I mean, Price is definitely a Cy Young candidate this year. Um yeah, I mean, you you could make you could make Price a first rounder. You know, if if you if you wanted, you could you could you could bet on the Red Sox winning some games for him. That's an interesting situation. They not only got themselves a number one starter finally, they got themselves an ace closer. So and and their bullpens improved. So you could you could take that uh, you could take that uh, that tact. Um, of all the pitchers that are that are in the top 50 ADP wise for the American League. The one I really liked that I didn't think had any luck at all last year was Corey Kluber. Uh, his team didn't score him any runs. Uh, he only won, I think, nine games. Um, um, I would bump him up a little bit, but there's just, there's just not an American League pitcher I'd see that I'd draft in the, in the first round. That's an interesting point about the team. Chris Sale is probably going to be the top-picked pitcher in the American League this year. I think so far he's in the mid-20s average draft position in mock drafts that are going on right now. And then you talk about a guy like Sale. Boy, that's not a good team, you know. And, and as unfair and as capricious as it is, wins are a category in most in most fantasy formats, including the daily games. A, a win is worth something to you. And when you're pitching for a team as disorganized and developing or whatever you want to say about the White Sox, they're not a good team. And that really affects Chris Sale's ability to, to rack up value because he's probably going to be on the outside looking in when it comes to dishing out the wins. Yeah, I agree. If, uh, if Chris Sale was on another team, um, we would definitely be talking about him as a potential number or a first-round pick in the uh, in the American League. You also have Felix Hernandez, who's fallen all the way in the into the 50s in average draft position this year uh, Felix Hernandez also pitching for a team that isn't really that good yeah I think Felix's issue more is that elbow that um, that has rumored to be was rumored to be barking at him at the end of the year um, he struggled for the first time ever in the second half if uh, if you look at the at the metrics his uh, his ERA was around four um, he's the kind of guy who could come back um, but again, you have to wonder at age 31 with all those pitches on his arm, um, was what happened to him in the second half indicative going forward or is he going to make some adjustments? Was it a blip? And is he going to, is he going to go back to being the, the Felix that we know he, he has been in the past? I wouldn't bet on it. I, I know that. I know some people will. I can't see him as a first rounder. The, the only other name I can, I'd like to bring up just for your brief comment is Chris Archer in Tampa Bay, who seems to be really taking huge steps towards possibly becoming the best pitcher in the American League. I still don't think he's uh, first round value though. 
Yep, you and I are in the same spot on Archer. I like Chris Archer a lot. Uh, love uh, the team he's with and how they handle pitching. Um, and they look like they've improved their lineup a little bit this year, too. Um, I'm not sure he's quite where some of these other guys have been or will be, but I would not put it past him for him to be in the top three pitchers in the American League by the end of the year. And I know that uh, you liked Kluber. You mentioned earlier again with a difficult team situation, but coming, I like pitchers who are really good coming off quite bad years or years that looked bad but weren't maybe quite as bad from a skills point of view. Corey Kluber could be a good sleeper in the sense that maybe you sneak him in the third round rather than the second where he probably should go. Yeah, agree with you. Um, people look at those nine wins and uh, you know even a, a three plus ERA. I mean, this is a guy that could have e just as easily had a two point five ERA with a little, little better defense, a little more luck. Um, Corey Kluber could uh, could definitely be the. Uh, he's a Cy Young candidate this year. Yeah, and a Cy Young winner before that. So there's a track record there. Before we uh, drop this topic, Jock, I notice in your uh, keeper league report you write a keeper league column uh, regularly at baseballhq.com. You've been talking about some young pitchers that you think people should be looking for, for especially in keeper league situations, but maybe also for this year. Uh, talk about some of the names that you've mentioned in that regard. Well, I mean, we, we, you and I have just been talking about um, who's going to be the uh, who, who, who in the AL would could be a number one uh, pick in the first round this year, and who, 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 who are going to be the AL's best pitchers this year? It's always tough to to divine that. Obviously, Dallas Keuchel is a perfect example of it from where he came from last year. What I tried to do in my keeper league and the current keeper league series I'm writing is broaden out my search and look at the next three years and ask yourself, okay, among these, in the next three years, who are the best candidates that could really break out and hit double-digit earnings, $20, $30 earnings? Uh, and I came up with names like um, um, Carlos Redon uh, from um, from the White Sox, Lance McCullers, um, Jordana Ventura from Kansas City, Marcus Stroman from Toronto, names like this. Um, one of those names, at least, is probably going to surprise this year. Probably two or three other ones are going to take two, three years. I think all of them are going to have a, at least one big year down the road. Could happen this year, might happen in the next three. If you're in a keeper league, I don't see how you can go wrong holding them on your roster right now. Well, then let me put you on the spot, Jock. Of Rodon, McCullers, Ventura, and Stroman, who would you put your money on for this season? This season, I would probably put my money on Ventura. As flighty and as, as mercurial as he has been, um, I like the club he plays with. He had a really terrific second half, um, so I'm a, I'm kind of a Ventura fan right now. I like Ventura f for those reasons, and also for the fact that he does have a little more time under his uh, resume than most of these other guys. I also like Stroman. He looked so good at the end of last year, coming off that potentially devastating injury that we were told at the time was going to knock him out for the year, and he comes back, and he basically carried the Blue Jays to the playoffs. David Price was on the roster, but Stroman was their best pitcher. Yeah, I agree, and I think the only reason I, I didn't put Stroman ahead of Ventura is I I still have trouble with that park he pitches in and that, that league he's in. Uh, it's probably just a, a bias that I need to get out of my head at this point, but I like Stroman a lot. He's a really good pitcher. And, and I agree with you entirely that Ventura has the advantage of playing in the American League Central, first of all, some tough teams, but also some big parks. And uh, Stroman has to face some of the, those tough uh, lineups in Baltimore, Boston, and New York. 
and even Tampa will be better this year, so it's certainly no easy thing. When I was talking with Nick earlier, I asked him about players who are coming into the National League from the American. Let me turn it around and ask you, which players coming into the American League from the National League via trade or free agency do you think are going to have the most significant impact on fantasy teams this year? Well, the big name that immediately hit me when you posed this question to me was was Todd Frazier uh, coming over to the cell from uh, from Cincinnati. And the fascinating thing when I looked at this year's uh, three-year ballpark tendency chart that we have at Baseball HQ, he actually loses uh, some home run power coming over from um, from Great American Park to the cell. And in the past, you wouldn't say that. The cell had always been one of the most home run friendly parks ever. And, 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 it, and it's still home run friendly. But uh, boy, Great American Park, um, uh, 17% um, plus home runs to right-handed hitters, 31 to left-handed. Of course, uh, Todd Frazier's a right-handed hitter. Uh, and then he goes over to the cell, which um, has a 13% over average for right-handed hitters. He's going to do fine, um, and uh, he, he'll, you know, he'll 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 still hit his home runs over there, but he's going to have a big impact. Justin Upton, very steady player, uh, going from Petco to Comerica. Another surprise, he actually loses out home runs going from Petco to Comerica, according to our ballpark tendencies. Petco's changed over the past few years. But he's got such a strong fly ball trend recently, I, and he's been so consistent home run-wise, home run he's going to hit 25 to 30 home runs this year. Um, and, of course, you got Corey Dickerson coming from Colorado to Tampa, uh, an upgrade for Tampa Bay, but uh, Corey Dickinson, Dickerson, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> coming from Coors Field, it'll be interesting to see how he adjusts. And uh, what about the situation with closers? There's been a lot of movement back and forth. Uh, of course, Aroldis Chapman comes into the league. Um, we've seen Craig Kimbrell come into the league. This is going to really change the picture for closers in the American League. And even though it's not your bailiwick, it's going to obviously create some follow-on effects in the National League where all these guys have left vacuums. Yeah, it was interesting uh, to to when I look back on this to see all of the the closers coming over from the National League, the American League. Um, Boston got Craig Kimbrell from San Diego to replace Uihara. Uh, Houston uh, got Ken Giles uh, uh, over from from Philadelphia, and Detroit, which really needed a closer, got Frankie Rodriguez. He's going to regress a little bit, probably. He he had a really terrific year with that new changeup of his, um, but he's still going to be good. Um, Sishik is in Seattle. They're calling him the closer. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why after looking at his BPIs and his performance from last year. I'm not sure that's going to hold up. Our oldest Chapman going over to New York is fascinating given the three-headed monster that they have and how they handle that. Now you got, you also have Drew Storen in Toronto. Is he going to close or are they going to stick with uh, the 19, 20-year-old Osuna? Um, the funny thing about the National League is that all of these teams have been left with closer battles, or at least most of them have. But uh, yeah, big closer influx from the National League to the American League. I'll just put my two cents worth in on the Toronto situation. I think Osuna, they, I think they want him to be a starter, but I don't know that they want him to be a starter right now at, at such a young age. I think the, the pitcher who is most likely to move from the bullpen in Toronto to the rotation is Aaron Sanchez, who they actually tried once or twice already in that role, and I think he wants to try it again. So I think Storin is more likely to move into that setup role for the time being. Of course, if Osuna blows three saves in his first six opportunities or something next year, I'm sure Storin steps right up, and uh, of course we'll have to wait and see that. Uh, Jock, before I let you go, kind of a catch-all 
What other American League news should we be watching as this season starts to shape up? Well, obviously, last year, stolen bases really tanked in the American League. I'm looking for uh, some teams to try to regenerate their running game again. That will be interesting. Um, Boston, as we mentioned, has a new number one starting pitcher, an elite closer, and a fan base that uh, wants to get out of the cellar for the last two years. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Um, Minnesota, to me, is a fascinating team. They have all kinds of offensive potential. They have a little better pitching, and they really arguably have the top two AL rookies in terms of potential 2016 impact in uh, Byron Buxton and Jose Barrios. Uh, how are they going to do? Um, closer to home here, non-fantasy question uh, for, for Angel fans. When does Mike Trout start making noise in, in, uh, in, uh, here in Orange County about uh, the state of the Angels? Because I don't think it's very good right now. It'll be interesting to see if the Angels are struggling, um, if he keeps his mouth shut or uh, like a good soldier, or um, um, how that situation goes, because uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting development. You know, a guy you mentioned, the, the Minnesota Twins, a guy I really like the the possibility for some uh, profit is Kyle Gibson, the pitcher there. Yeah, Kyle Gibson uh, Kyle Gibson had a had an interesting step-up year. Uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Eno Saris, just wrote a very good column over at ESPN um, about pitchers that actually, like Dallas Keuchel, could come out of nowhere. And uh, Kyle Gibson was one of them, and he went into detail, as Eno does, over over the, the pitches he had worked on and developed and whether they could make more progress next year. Good article. If you have their insider uh, 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 subscription, I suggest that you go read it. He also mentioned Jordano Ventura joining you, and uh, Nathan Eovaldi, I think, was an, another name that he came up with. Nathan Eovaldi can really fire it. The, the question is command and all that kind of thing. Uh, Jock, it's a great first time for 2016. Looking forward to a real interesting year, and uh, of course, you're going to be with us every step of the way. I sure will, PD. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great year. Thanks, Jock. Uh, Jock Thompson is the BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis. He writes the Keeper League column. He participates in the Speculator column, does everything but uh, sweep the floors and vacuum the rugs. Uh, he covers player news for us from the American League here at Baseball HQ Radio as well. Coming up next, our expert commentaries. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. This is Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ reminding you that our first pitch forums are back for 2016. Join Ron Chandler, Jock Thompson, Todd Zola, myself, and more of your favorite Baseball HQ Radio voices in these three-hour interactive seminars. These entertaining and highly engaging events are designed to give you the information you need to win your fantasy league in 2016. This year's tour includes some traditional stops and some new locations. We'll be in Oakbrook, Illinois on February 27th, St. Louis on February 28th, Houston on March 5th, Atlanta on March 6th, McLean, Virginia on March 11th, Saddlebrook, New Jersey on March 12th, Natick, Massachusetts on March 13th, Arcadia, California on March 13th. The Baseball Forecaster and BaseballHQ.com are both tremendous resources, but sometimes the best advice is live advice. So join us for a First Pitch Forum event in your area. We even have a special offer for Baseball HQ radio listeners. When registering for a First Pitch event at BaseballHQ.com, just use the coupon code RADIO2016 to save $5 on your admission. We're looking forward to seeing you live and in person at our First Pitch of Forum events this February and March. Come out and join us. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. 
our first edition for 2016. I'm Patrick Davitt. Great to have you aboard. We have our expert commentaries coming up next, but first let me tell you a little about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game in the preseason, during spring training, and all season long with content across a wide range of great information. Just this week from the GM's office, Brent Hershey lays out the preseason plan for BaseballHQ.com coverage in the Market Pulse. Analyst Matt Cedarholm looks at second baseman, and in our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessments, bullpen columnist Doug Dennis takes a look at his projection lists for 2016. And of course, we have projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you prepare to dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball, all at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, our forecaster position profiles, and master notes. But leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Nationals shortstop prospect Trey Turner is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Heading into spring training, the Minnesota Twins' Byron Buxton and the Los Angeles Dodgers' Corey Seager are likely to receive a tremendous amount of attention, and rightfully so. Seager and Buxton are the consensus top two prospects in baseball and both figure to break camp with a starting role. But they are also very likely to be owned, even in mixed keeper leagues, and so over the next couple of weeks we're going to take a look at a handful of other prospects who are also likely to make an impact in 2016. First up is the Washington Nationals' Trey Turner. The 22-year-old Turner was the 13th overall pick in the 2014 draft and was signed for $2.9 million. He was traded to the Nationals as part of the Will Myers deal and looked very impressive in his pro debut, hitting 322 with a 370 on base percentage and a 458 slugging percentage. He impressed the Nationals enough in his late season call-up that they opted to let shortstop Ian Desmond leave via free agency. Turner has a quick right-handed stroke with surprising pop for his size and a good understanding of the strike zone. Because of his below-average arm, he might be stretched a bit at short and long-term could be moved over to second base, but he has nice offensive upside regardless of where he plays. Turner's biggest appeal to fantasy owners is going to be his plus speed. Most scouts consider him a 70-grade runner, and he has the tools to get on base and steal 30-plus bags on a regular basis in the majors. Heading into spring training, the Nationals have Danny Espinosa penciled in as their starting shortstop, but he's a career 230 hitter, and it's really only a matter of time before Turner wrestles away the starting job. If Turner doesn't win the starting job in spring training, he could be a huge bargain on draft day, and is definitely worth owning in long-term keeper formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting teams brings you reports and updates on all the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups during the season, and everything else you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our coverage includes Rob Gordon's look at first base prospects across the major league organizations. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more player time or taking a seat on the bench. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at a closer battle brewing in Milwaukee and the center field job in Detroit. There's an interesting battle for the closer role brewing in Milwaukee between a trio of highly skilled relievers, so whoever emerges has considerable upside entering 2016. The three pitchers are Will Smith, Jeremy Jeffries, and Corey Knable, and all three have legit cases for the role. 
We'll start out with Smith first. He's coming off a career-best 284 ERA in 2015, which was right in line with his 288 expected ERA. It tells us this was all skill and not luck. Smith's strikeout rate is in elite territory, and he misses plenty of bats. He also made positive strides limiting walks and getting ground balls last season, so Smith is very much a closer-worthy option. Jeffries, on the other hand, doesn't have the elite dominance that Smith has, but he's a ground ball machine, as his ground ball rate has been above 58% each of the last three seasons. Jeffries' ERA has also been below three in each of those seasons, so he's got the best track record of this group as well. And finally, Knable, who's coming off an excellent 2015 with a closer-worthy 132 BPV, thanks to an elite strikeout per nine and a strong ground ball rate. Though Knable's only been around for one real season, one full season, he's got the shortest track record of the group, and he's the youngest, so he might be the riskiest option right now. It looks like a dead heat right now, though I'd give a slight nod to Jeffries, mostly because of his track record and Milwaukee's current bullpen situation. Will Smith is basically the only lefty projected for a normal innings total in the pen, and while he does thrive against left and right-handed hitters, Milwaukee may need him to be more flexible in more of a situational role against top lefties late in games. As with most closer battles, it's a wait-and-see game, but whoever emerges in Milwaukee should post considerable fantasy profit. Flipping over to the AL, BaseballHQ.com's Mike Shears recently profiled the looming battle for center field in Detroit between Cameron Mabin and Anthony Ghost. Both hitters have similar type profiles as speedsters, so whoever emerges looks to be a late source for steals. Mabin came out strong in 2015 with a 294 batting average with 7 homers and 15 steals with Atlanta in the first half, but he tanked down the stretch with a 240 batting average in the second half. Mabin flashed elite speed early in his career, but his speed score was just about league average last season, which hints at more downside than upside, especially when we consider Mabin's injury history. Ghosts, on the other hand, has monster speed. He's already been identified as a 40-plus steel source, if he can hold a starting gig in 2016. Ghost showed good play patience down the stretch in the second half last season with an 11% walk rate, but he strikes out a lot, had a 70% contact rate last year, which makes him a pretty big batting average risk. Ghost is also a pretty big liability against left-handed pitching. My hedge right now is with Mabin. I think he'll win the starting gig out of camp given his higher contact rate and better major league results throughout his career. But a continuation of last year's second half along with that injury risk suggests we should keep ghosts on our radars. He'd be a cheap source for a potentially major stolen base total in 2016. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available late in your draft or in the end game, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are two players who changed address in the offseason, Yankees outfielder Aaron Hicks and Colorado reliever Jake McGee. Here to tell you more about it, BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. In our very first edition of Frequent Flyers for the 2016 season, we'll look at two players, a hitter and a pitcher, who may be flying under the radar in your league and possibly in your draft, beginning with Aaron Hicks of the New York Yankees. 
Traded from the Minnesota Twins to the New York Yankees last November, the 26-year-old outfielder finds himself going from a starting role in center field to a fourth outfielder role behind veterans Brett Gardner, Jacoby Ellsbury, and Carlos Beltran. Not exactly an ideal situation for fantasy owners. Not to mention Hicks, a career 225 hitter, with only 26 stolen bases and 20 home runs in three seasons with the Minnesota Twins, still has only 819 Major League at-bats under his belt. But, on the other hand, 13 of those 26 steals and 11 of those 20 home runs came last season. Plus, his batting average is trending upward from 182 in 2013 to 215 in 2014, to 256 in 2015. More importantly, Aaron Hicks has improved his contact rate from 70% in 2013 to 81% last season. With his above-average statistically scouted speed, as measured by BaseballHQ.com, to be 130 in 2015, where 100 is considered to be the league average, continued improvement of his ability to make contact could mean greater run production and possibly 30 or more stolen bases if given the opportunity. Of course, it's important to remember that Aaron Hicks, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be available in your league or your draft. To be clear, we're not saying that Aaron Hicks will steal 30 bases in 2016, only that he could be a great buy-low opportunity in your draft if he continues to improve his contact rate. Now let's turn our attention to another player who was traded this offseason. The trade of Jake McGee to Colorado, in exchange for Corey Dickerson, raised a lot of eyebrows and leaves a lot of unanswered questions, especially for fantasy owners. For one, why would a team that won only 68 games trade for an elite closer? After all, the Milwaukee Brewers, at 68 wins and 94 losses, had an identical record to the Rockies in 2015. Yet Milwaukee seems to be taking the opposite approach. They've already traded their closer, Francisco Rodriguez, who saved 38 games for the Brewers in 2015, for prospects, and Milwaukee appears to be embracing the youth movement. A closer look shows that Colorado only converted 36 of their 61 save opportunities in 2015 for a conversion rate of 59%, the worst in the National League. Is Jake McGee the answer? Despite injuries that limited him to only 39 games in 2015, McGee's 11.6 dom was comparable to his 11.4 dom in 2014. Remember, McGee at 11 is well above the dom of 7 or higher considered to be elite by BaseballHQ.com. Plus, McGee has only given up 5 home runs total in 112 games between 2014 and 2015. Not to mention, his command ratio, 6 in 2015 versus 5.6 in 2014, and his control ratio, 1.9 in 2015 versus 2 in 2014, were also comparable, showing that his skill set is not only intact, but also could be considered elite by the benchmarks presented by BaseballHQ.com. So how will that translate to Coors Field? Sure, there's risk. Coors Field has not been friendly to pitchers. According to BaseballHQ.com's park factors from 2013 to 2015, right-handed batters enjoyed a 21% advantage for home runs at Coors Field, and left-handed batters gained a 15% advantage for home runs at Coors Field. But, on the other hand, Jake McGee will likely see more save opportunities in Colorado than he would in Tampa, where the 2015 AL saves leader, 
Brad Boxberger, appears to have locked down the closer's role previously held by McGee. Maybe Jake McGee's elite skills will improve Colorado's NL worst 59% conversion rate. Maybe McGee's stock will go up if he's traded to a contender by the August 1st non-waiver trade deadline. Either way, if the price is right, maybe you should consider drafting Aaron Hicks and Jake McGee, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our forecaster position profile report. The Baseball Forecaster Annual includes extensive tools and cheat sheets for draft preparation, and during this preseason, Baseball HQ Radio will be letting you in on how the positions shape up from those forecaster lists. Here with a look at catchers and designated hitters is analyst Greg Fishwick. We're not going to argue over the relative merits of particular players or rank them in a certain order. There are far too many league variables out there to do that, including whether you use one catcher or two and one utility player or two. So we'll embrace the imperfections inherent in predicting player performance and use Ron Chandler's 2016 Baseball Forecaster Universal Draft Grid to get an overview of the quantity and quality of players at each position. The Universal Draft Grid groups players into seven tiers. Elite, Gold, Star, Regular, Mid-Level, Bench, and Fringe. Let's see how the catching core looks this year. To begin with, there are no elite catchers. The only gold catcher is Buster Posey, and the only star catcher is Jonathan Lucroy. Posey has extra value because he qualifies at first base, and he has straight-A reliability grades for health, experience, and consistency. Guys with higher reliability grades make good targets. Among the ranks of regular catchers, the highest reliability grades belong to Salvador Perez. Among mid-level catchers, it's Miguel Montero. Other mid-level catchers to target in the National League include Wellington Castillo, Travis Darnot, Devin Mezzarocco, and Kyle Schwarber. In the American League, target Brian McCann, Blake Swihart, and Stephen Vogt. Most of your targets will come from those two next tiers, regulars and mid-levels. Together, they have 17 catchers. There are seven regulars, three from the NL and four from the AL, and 10 mid-levels, seven from the NL and three from the AL. That's a total of 19 catchers at mid-level or above, 12 from the NL and seven from the AL. Good news if you're in an NL-only league or a one-catcher mixed league, but bad news if you're in an AL-only league or a two-catcher league. If you are in one of those kinds of leagues and it has keepers, consider targeting a catcher on another team and offering a trade. Otherwise, you'll be thrashing about in the deep end of the catcher pool with 12 bench catchers and 20 fringe catchers. If you keep calm and look about, you'll see three of those catchers have life preservers to help you stay afloat. From the bench, James McCann has shown promise and stands to be the starter for Detroit. From the fringe, Jason Castro has flashed some skills in the past and is on the strong side of a Houston platoon. And Cameron Rupp is poised to take over in Philadelphia. Now here's a mnemonic device let's call your why not list. So in the heat of battle, you'll remember to let your league mates overvalue Yadier Molina from the regulars 
because of his bum thumb. While you sneak in Yasmani Grandal from the bench if he shows his shoulder is okay in spring training. Certainly if you're in a keeper league and you have Posey or Lucroy at a reasonable salary or round, by all means hang on to them. In leagues where they're available though, keep in mind that our research shows the opportunity cost of going after a catcher in the early rounds of a draft or paying a premium price in an auction will come back to bite you by decreasing the overall quality of your team without the player you forego. But don't wait until the very end of your draft or the dollar days phase of your auction either, because our research also shows that of all positions, the only one that will return negative value in the end game is catch. Let's finish with a gander at designated hitters. Too many NL-only owners overlook this list, thinking it doesn't apply to them. Sure, most owners prefer the flexibility of players with position eligibility for their UTs, but depending upon your bench reserves and farm system, there are stealth ways to maximize your use of those NL-only UT slots by using the designated hitter list. With a 20-game eligibility criterion, there are 21 players on the universal draft grid who qualify only at DH. There are no elite or gold DHs, and the top two are stars David Ortiz and Kendris Morales. Among the seven regulars is the DH with the highest reliability grades, Billy Butler. The only mid-level DH is now an NL crossover who's penciled in as Pittsburgh's new first baseman, John Jaso. And this is a good time to suggest the strategy of drafting a rookie or prospect at UT, then moving him to your reserve bench and replacing him with the first fab if your league rules allow it. Because instead of JSO, you could draft Josh Bell at UT from the fringe level, and he could finish the year at first base for Pittsburgh. Other examples of rookies on the rise who might be worth a stash are Tim Anderson from the bench level and J.P. Crawford and A.J. Reed from the fringe level. Anderson can already outhit his competition for the Chicago White Sox shortstop job if he improves his fielding. Crawford is only blocked by the mediocre Freddie Galvis at shortstop in Philadelphia, and A.J. Reed just has to prove his power parade last year was no fluke, and he's in like Flynn. Also, depending upon your league rules, look for players who didn't play last year at all, and thus may not be eligible at a position. Jurickson Profar is a perfect example from the bench level. And you might even find that Devin Mezzarocco is only eligible at DH in your league because he only logged six games at catcher last year. Finally, for those in dynasty leagues or just rebuilding, keep in mind the possibility that one result of Major League Baseball's collective bargaining this year could be the National League adopting the designated hitter beginning next year. We hope this position preview helps you build your budgets or plan your draft rounds for catchers and designated hitters. Next week, we'll look at corner infielders. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, mostly because I run the show, and as we open our 2016 season, I'd like to talk about how we got here with the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. The podcast actually started way back in the mists of time. I'm not even really sure exactly when. 
Ron Chandler, you might remember him, wanted to expand the HQ brand into podcasting, just as he had been a relatively early pioneer getting fantasy baseball content onto the web. We got hooked up with some outfit who wanted to produce a podcast for us. A few of us HQers had to phone in to a studio somewhere and try to do the show over the phone. It didn't go very well. We had to call in when it was convenient for them. And for those of us who had jobs, we had to sneak around finding conference rooms at the office so we could call in. Our producer didn't really seem to know much about fantasy baseball, and the audio quality was really bad, mostly because everyone was on speakerphone, which adds that awful distant roomy sound to the already subpar quality of a phone call. I don't remember how many of those shows we did, but it wasn't very many, and we had so few listeners that we could probably have fit them all into a phone booth which would have been appropriate. We started in May or so, as I remember, but we were out of it by July. Kind of like the Royals in those days. After Ron cancelled that arrangement, I approached him with an offer to produce a Baseball HQ podcast myself and keep it in-house. I had a background in radio production in both private and public radio, at CKNW Radio in Vancouver, and on regional and national shows that aired on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Ron is a risk taker, it's one of the best things about him, and he agreed to backstop this new podcast that we were going to call Baseball HQ Radio. In hindsight, I wish we hadn't used the word radio, because a podcast is really something different, not better necessarily, but different in its relationship to you listeners. Usually a radio station is something a listener turns on out of habit, or because there are no other options, like in the car. By contrast, a podcast is something that most listeners seek out because they have an affinity with the subject matter and or the people on the show. Originally, I did most of the production at work. I never did get employee of the month at that place. I had an office with a door, but after a few close calls with the boss barging in while I was on the air, I started booking conference rooms on different floors. I had to carry my microphone and computer and the stand and some other equipment back and forth, and I had to use a fairly big computer carry-all bag. One time, I was a few minutes late finishing my calls, and the guy who had the room booked for the next hour came in and saw all my equipment set up. He looked at it all over the table, and then he looked quizzically at me. I got out of the situation by explaining that I was experimenting with a new idea to send recorded messages by voicemail as an innovative executive communications method. Those were the days, of course, when you could get away with darn near anything by claiming it was innovative. It was at that same workplace where I recruited some of the people on my work team to record standing elements like introductions, promos, ads, and all of those kind of things. One of the guys had been a disc jockey for Armed Forces Radio or something, and he did all his tracks like he was channeling Gary Owens. Most of the rest of them tried hard, but they didn't have what I needed, such as the ability to read out loud. That effort had one big success, though, and it made it all worthwhile. I got some great tracks out of a colleague named Angela Rodriguez. We called her A-Rod, and it's her voice you hear on the produced parts of the opening segment every week. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. That segment, by the way, used to be way longer, but we've been steadily whittling it down over time to keep up with the prevailing trends in podcasts. Angela also recorded the disclaimer track for the outro segment, but when Baseball HQ changed hands, I had moved to a new city, and I couldn't get hold of Angela to re-record it. So now, if you listen to the podcast all the way to the end, the last voice you hear doing that disclaimer is my wife, Lisa. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Don't they sound great? Eventually, to the delight of my wife Lisa, I moved the HQ Radio production facility to our house, where it has been ever since. Although, of course, we've had different houses in different places. The HQ Radio home office is now my desk in the basement of our home in Waterloo, Ontario. The structure of the show has stayed remarkably consistent. Market Watch reports to open feature interviews and expert segments. Besides me, two BaseballHQ.com staff members have been a part of the show since it started. Harold Nick Nichols, speaking of great radio voices, has always been our man on the NL beat. And Rob Gordon has done the Minor League Minute from day one. Oddly enough, even though I've been doing the show with Nick for more than 10 years, probably more than 500 shows, and he's one of my favorite people, I've never actually met him face to face. Other segments, of course, have changed over the years. Our American League beat started with Andy Andres. Then it was handled by Matt Beagle, who did a great job as well. And now, of course, it's the province of Jock Thompson. I really can't remember all the members of the staff who did regular segments. I do remember Brandon Cruz doing a bunch of different things, something different every year, much in the same way that Ryan Bloomfield has done for us more recently. And Ron Chandler, of course, did Master Notes for many years, before turning that role over to Ray Murphy and me. Talk about a hard act to follow. We've also had a truly impressive string of tremendous feature guests over the years. Many of our HQ staff have been on the show to discuss their areas of expertise, and our roster of outside guests is a who's who of fantasy baseball experts. One guest I remember really well was Corey Schwartz, the Vice President of Stats for Major League Baseball Advanced Media. I'd never have dreamed about asking a guy like Corey onto the show, but I met him at Tout Wars in New York, and he was such a great guy, and he agreed to right away that he would come on the show. That show, by the way, went exceptionally well, and went on to win the Fantasy Sports Writers Association 2013 Award for Best Fantasy Sports Podcast. I still have the trophy. I've also had a few unusual guests. The one I remember best was an insurance agent who had set up fantasy sports insurance. The customer could insure a fantasy team against an injury to a star player. If the player got injured, the customer would recover his entry fee. Of course, this was aimed at people playing in high-stakes leagues. The agent, he was a very earnest guy. Very interesting, too. Now, I don't know if the product ever panned out, but it sure seemed like a good idea. The guest I always wanted to have on but never managed to get was former New York Governor Mario Cuomo. I'd read a magazine article about him in which it said he played in a very tough, very competitive, very hard-nosed fantasy baseball league made up of high-level lawyers and New York political figures. I sent Governor Cuomo emails and letters. I called his office. I left messages. I did everything short of sending him a singing telegram or hiring a skywriter. And even though I always took pains to say the interview would be only about baseball, not about politics, he never replied. Since one of the most common questions I get from listeners in person or through our email address bhqradio at gmail.com is how we put the show together. From the beginning, Ron and I had agreed that sound quality was going to be a watchword for our show as a way to reflect the quality of the HQ brand. We do the whole show in MP3 stereo and at a very high bit rate. Makes the show files a little bigger, but it also sounds a lot better. When we were starting out, some listeners complained about the size of the files because they took quite a while to download. But we were pretty confident that rapidly growing bandwidth would make the issue moot. And we were right. We're still sure our pod is one of the best sounding in the business. 
I actually once asked if we could upload a CD quality version of the show every week in addition to the MP3 version we do upload, and they said not such a good idea. I do produce the whole show as a WAV file, which is very high quality, and then convert it to MP3 and tag it with separate software. Everybody on the show uses Audacity audio recording and editing freeware. Costs nothing and it works great. Various guys on the show use various kinds of microphones and other equipment. Most of them have headphone-mounted boom mics, but I and a few others use standalone studio mics. If you're keeping score at home, mine is a Samson C01U USB mic. It plugs right into the computer. It's a really good microphone. We record the Market Watch segments the day of the show. I record myself on my computer, and while I call Nick and Jock on the phone, I don't use the phone audio. They record their segments on their own computers using their own studio mics. Then they send me those high-quality recordings by email or online file share. Then I stitch their parts together with my part, and if I do it right, it sounds like a seamless conversation. The technique is called double-ending, and it's something I learned working for CBC Radio. The HQ commentary experts all pre-record their segments using quality mics. Our feature guests are recorded on the phone, except for the occasional guest who has access to a good microphone. All our conversations are pre-planned. I send the guests' question list in advance so they can prepare. Nick and Jock send me the names of players they want to discuss the night before our calls. It's been a lot of work over the years, but also a heck of a lot of fun, and 99.9% of the feedback we get is highly positive. We do appreciate it, and we'll keep on going as long as you keep listening. So thanks to everyone on both sides of the microphone for more than 10 years of success at Baseball HQ Radio. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February the 5th, our first show of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank all our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Forecaster Position Profiled analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I had the master notes, and I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. I also have a personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, and please feel free to send us a message on our email address, bhqradio at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Most importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. That really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.